Ruth 2, 1 through 12. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I have fine favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves of the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not get, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Thank you, Josh. It is my fault that your bulletin does not reflect the correct text. I changed it on, <coughs> excuse me, I changed it on Renee after she had already printed them off. So um, let me start by praying. This is, uh, I've, I've worked hard and long on this message, more so than usual. It, uh, it's going to have a few more slides than usual um, because the uh, content um, is, is very countercultural, and I wanted to, and we're going to look at some science, a lot of recent science, and I want you to hear the words of the scientists on the issue of what it means to be a male, and so you don't just take it as, as my word. So let me pray real quick, and... Um, We'll get going. Lord God, thank you for creating us in the way that you have, male and female. God, our desire is to reflect your image as your people as you conform all of us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have created us as male and female to do that. And so, Lord God, I, I pray that you would help us to be clear on what that means uh, for us as a church that we would not be taken captive by cultural philosophies and traditions that would divert us from your call upon our lives, but that we could see from your word um, what, it, what it has for us in regard to what it means to be male and female, and that we could also benefit from the ways that you have instructed uh, and revealed things to us through, through science and through the world around us. 
God, we are thankful to you, Lord God, and we ask that you would bless our time and that it uh, would um, stir our hearts and minds towards reflection and towards unity. In your son's precious name, we pray. Amen. So I was talking with Deirdre as we um, were planning out the series and talking about these messages and got together a couple times with her as she put her sermon together, which I think she did a great job last week, and we've got a lot of positive feedback. And, and just so you know that we didn't have her preach on what it meant to be a female because she's a female, she'll be back in a few weeks and will be a part of the regular rotation, uh, annual rotation uh, in, in, our, in our preaching. So we, you know, as, as we talked, we, we both concluded that the way we think about life, the way we, we approach God is directly affected by how we think of ourselves as gendered selves, as we think about ourselves as male and female. And remember, as we, as we look in this issue of identity, identity is really helping us, our sense of identity is helping us answer these three questions. What does it mean to respect others? How, how do I treat others? What is a good way to treat others? Uh, what is the good life? And then what does it mean to earn the respect of others? Which is the question of dignity. And so last week, Deirdre looked at what it meant to be a, a female. And this week, I'm going to hit what it means to be male. So we're going to look at culture, science, and the Bible. We're going to look at challenges in our culture. And we're going to um, hopefully provide some greater clarity than what our world provides uh, right now. And one of the things that I want to bring up here at the beginning is what uh, some have called the, the dominant gender paradigm. And it's a paradigm that has, and, and, and I'm just going to kind of keep pressing through because we've got a lot of material to cover. Um, it's an it's a, it's a orientation towards the conversation around gender and masculinity that essentially sees that masculinity is something that needs to be suppressed. Here's a quote from uh, Dr. Carol Gilligan, quoted in the book by um, Michael Gurian called Saving Our Sons, which is just pub published last year, and contains most of the most up-to-date data on um, maleness and femaleness from a scientific perspective. So this, this woman says, masculinity, is a dangerous learned behavior that can't help but become toxic because it is based in unreasonable and dangerous gender stereotypes and patriarchal masculine ideas of maleness. Because every parent, teacher, worker, and every boy and girl learns it, it is the root of our gender issues and must be deconstructed if we are going to empower girls and help our boys mature into the men that we want them to be. Now, absolutely true that male oppression over millennia, okay, has caused problems, a lot of problems, a lot of abuse, no question about that. The solution is not to suppress masculinity. Um, and the reasons why 
we have struggled so much with men over the millennia um, has a lot more to do than just the dynamics of oppressive masculinity. And especially if you look over the last 50 years and the changes that have taken place in our culture um, and the problems that we see in men now, especially a tendency towards violence, um, there, is, there is more going on that are creating the problems that men and boys are experiencing than just this, this um, model of masculinity that, that exists and that, quote, that men are trying supposedly to um, affirm and become. So I wanted to take a look at where things are at right now in terms of the experiences of gender difference in our culture. And so there's a, a study done by a man named, oh, here it's at the, uh, I think it fell off. It's an institute called the Pell Institute out of Washington, D.C. The last name of the gentleman is Mortensen. And he did, a, he did this study, super comprehensive, and it's called For Every Hundred Girls, is the study. And so here are just some of the findings. This is a small sampling of the findings. For every hundred girls who repeat kindergarten, there are 194 boys that have to repeat kindergarten. For every 100 girls ages 15 through 19 who die for any reason, there are 242 boys that die between the ages of 15 and 19. For every 100 girls ages 5 through 14 who commit suicide, there are 225 boys. For every 100 girls ages 15 to 24 who commit suicide, there are 433 boys. For every 100 girls with multiple learning and physical disabilities, there are 189 boys. For every 100 girls that are less than 15 years old with a disability that needs assistance, there are 195 boys. For every 100 young women enrolled in college or women enrolled in college, there are 78 men. For every 100 women that are earning an associate's, associate's degree, there are 61 men. For every 100 women that earn a bachelor's degree, there are 75 men. For every 100 women that earn a master's degree, there are 66 men. And for every 100 women that earn a doctoral degree, there are 91 men. The perception is that the men are still dominating and in control. And I want to read a quote here by two, uh, two scientists from MIT in their research study called Wayward Sons. They say this, the growing disparity between men and women is easy to overlook given the fact that at the very top of our society, power and money is still overwhelmingly held by men. And yet, when we move to the realm of more ordinary people, we see a tectonic shift. Over the last three decades, the labor market trajectory of males in the US has turned downward along four dimensions. Skills acquisition, employment rates, occupational stature, and real wage levels. These emerging gender gaps suggest reason for concern. 
And so some of the causes that have been promote, promoted, so that, I mean, uh, the, the genre of literature about the problems of men is almost its own genre. I mean, it's a, lots of books, articles, magazines on the problem of men. And most of the causes that a lot of these authors attribute to these, these uh, or say are causing these problems is that there's, there's this aspiration to fulfill this vision of masculinity, this dominant vision of masculinity, and because they can't, they've kind of checked out of life. And the science doesn't back that up. And so I'm not gonna go into it in detail in terms of the causes of the problems that we are facing today, but I just wanted to bring them up because we need to understand what's going on in the lives of boys and in the lives of men. And this, the science shows three factors that are causing a lot of the problems that we are facing today. The first one is genetic factors, including environmental toxins that have been introduced in our food over the last five decades. Second one, nurture trauma that is received in neurotoxic amounts. So, um, nurturing environments or the environments that boys are growing up in, there are some that are so tra traumatic, sexual abuse, physical abuse, etc., that the experiences are changing and affecting their brain chemistry. And there is the under-nurture of essential components of male development male development by nuclear extended and communal families. There's a correlation in that because there has been, and much of it is a reaction to male abuses over the centuries. There is, there's this idea that men have had all of the attention and effort given to them, or they have taken it, and a lot of emphasis has been put on the formation and the development of girls and women, which has been great. What's happened is that there has essentially been, because of this perspective, this, this dominant gender paradigm, there's essentially been uh, an absence and neglect on efforts to tend to the nurturing needs of men, especially from a perspective of the differences that, that men and women have in their formation. The schools have become increasingly feminine in the ways that they have approached learning and development and education, and this has had a large effect. The, sci the science shows that, that these problems up here, have, uh, they essentially affect 20 to 25% of the male population as a whole. And so a lot of men are doing, a lot of boys and a lot of men are doing well in the schooling environments that are more geared towards female or women, female approaches to learning and development. But there is a whole block of boys and men that, that uh, are suffering as a consequence. And so what I want to do today is take a, a, a broad picture of of masculinity as presented in the scriptures. And I want to show some scientific research behind what the scriptures are teaching. Okay, last week Deirdre looked at culture 
what the cultural perspective of female was and kind of in, in some of its negative perspectives and then the, the contrasting and positive view from the scriptures. Today I want to, I want to show how, how science, which is a part of our culture, how science affirms what, what scripture teaches. So what does it mean to be male? And we're going to look at, real quick, Josh didn't read these passages, but we're going to look at a couple verses out of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Uh, to look at just some of the key ideas there. And we're going we're gonna to wrap it up in, from Ruth uh, because Boaz, the, not the central figure of the story of Ruth, but one of the central figures, is, is really a, a reflection of what I think biblical, biblical mas, uh, masculinity is. So what does it mean to be male? And the first passage I want to look at is Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And I'm going to read it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So if we ask the question, what is the good? You know, if you were, if you were the only human being on the earth at this time, what, what is the good for him? Well, um, he tills the ground and he protects the ground for food, for himself, and for others. And he's been charged with the task of protecting everything from death. Do not eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. That was his only task. So if you answer the question, what is the good life for the human being on the face of the planet who's by himself? He is to work. He is to protect. That's the good that man has been given at this point. The next passage I want to read is Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Then the man said, so this is after, this is after, and, and Deirdre covered this passage last week. This is after... Um, God has observed that man is alone. Not that he's lonely, he's alone. And God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. So then he brings all these animals, and he names all these animals. Doesn't find a helper. Doesn't find the sustainer. So God fashions woman from the rib and flesh of a man. And this is his response. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the original Hebrew, it's a song. The first text, the first human speech in Scripture is a song sung by a man in praise of the woman that God has given him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, when you are evaluating characters in, in literary pieces, there's a, a, a category, there's a taxonomy of, of things you're looking for to determine character. One of the highest revealers of character is direct speech. And so here, the first thing that man says is, 
is a result of what he sees. He doesn't say, what a great mind she has. He doesn't say, what a great conversationalist she is. He sees her and he sings a song. He says, she is me. She is from me. And he renames her. He's Ish, Ish, I-S-H. She is Isha. He renames himself. He's no longer man. This is the introduction of husband and wife. It is her physicality that gives him a sense of who she is to him. He saw the animals and named them and didn't see anything from the animals that he would consider as a sustaining helper. But he sees the woman and he sees that she immediately is what he needs to no longer be alone, to be a helper and to sustain him just from her physical appearance. Now, for men, for men, to know is to see and to touch. Okay? It's important. And notice here, too, that it says that for this reason, um, a man will leave his parents. It doesn't say for this reason, a man will get kicked out of his parents' basement. It doesn't say for this reason, the whole culture is going to come down on him until he gets married. No, for this reason, a man will leave. For this reason, a man will leave. The motivation to cling to a woman as wife is the energy and power that men need to grow up. And if they are able to engage, and this is the power that women have. If, if women, excuse me, if men are able to engage in one flesh relationships without the commitment of clinging as husband to a wife, they will not mature. Masculinity is wrapped up, and I know Deirdre last week wanted to explain what it meant to be female aside from wife and mother, and we're going to do that today. But here at the beginning, before the fall, um, for men to take on their masculinity and their maleness, they need women. Women bring men to maturity. There's a difference that men have and women have in their brains. So this is Dr. Luann Brezadine from the University of San Francisco, wrote, has written a couple books, The Female Brain, The Male Brain. This, you guys, this is all like research in the last five to 10 years. The male and female brains are different in the ways they handle stress, communicate, learn, grow, and love. The male brain is understudied for various reasons, some of them overtly political. 
We suffer the consequences of our ignorance every day as men do things that we do not understand. It is across the board matter of fact that women and men have equal intelligence. So when you read the studies that say that the differences between men and women's brains, uh, there is no difference or there's very little difference, they're usually speaking to intelligence capabilities. But in terms of functioning and processing and what they are strong as male brains and female brains to do, they're very different, different functioning especially in this area of what is called emotional intelligence. Now, emotional intelligence, I know this is kind of like a lecture today. I'll get to the preaching as we go, but really at the end. Um, Emotional intelligence is a measure of effective maturation. It's 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 a measurement of emotional processing, how people respond with empathy towards others, it, it, it determines success, successful relationships and human interactions and adaptability. And Michael Gurian says this, male emotional intelligence is often more kinesthetic and more physical than female. They get into other people's physical space. And if you're watching teenage boys grow up, you know what I mean and is often misunderstood or villainized. In the male, as a result of numerous brain differences, including a larger and more active cerebellum, emotions move more quickly from the brain into their bodies than the female. Meanwhile, the female brain moves more of its instantaneous neurotransmission of emotion upward from the limbic system into the word centers on both sides of the top of the brain. So here's what they're saying. When men get energized and emotional, they're going to do something. They're going to act on something. Women want to have a conversation. We all know this to be true. Now, this is not saying that men can't engage in conversation. It's not saying that men, that women aren't engaged in activity and doing things. This is, this is saying, this this is describing what the, the natural tendencies are. And so we see from the standpoint, okay, so what core identities do we see here about men from the text and from science? Well, they are going to work to provide for themselves and for others. They're going to work to protect the garden and all of creation. There's, a, there's an innate sense to concern themselves with the care of others. They are to obey God to protect humanity from death. This is the good life. This is the good that they've been called to. And that personal wholeness is experienced through clinging to a woman. And it's that, I mean, if you think about it, he had a part of him removed. And some philosophers and scholars that I've been reading it, it, man's quest is the eternal quest to feel complete again. To feel complete again. So we get to husband. Okay, so human being, man by himself, he's, he's moved from man now to husband. And so what does he do as a husband? Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so 
If you ask yourself the question, what is the first speech that man spoke, then you have to ask, your, ask yourself the question, what is the first speech that woman spoke? And this is that passage. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the first action and activity of woman is this pursuit of this apple, this knowledge, this knowledge of good and evil. It's not about her husband. It's about learning. It's about beauty. It's about sustenance. And so she's drawn towards this fruit, this knowledge. And she eats of it. And Adam is there, man is there with her. The text is very clear. She gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. He does nothing to protect himself from his, to protect his wife or himself from the death that God promised would come if they obtained knowledge of good and evil. So essentially, human beings cannot possess knowledge of good and evil without becoming evil. And so Leon Cass says this. You know, we, when we ask the question why, why did man just sit there? What was going on in his mind and in his body? Leon Cass says this, the man who did as he has so often done since. He did what was pleasing to the woman, speechlessly followed her lead into disobedience, or to say the same thing, into humanity. So here, you, I mean, if you've if you got to picture the scene, and you've got to get the image out of your mind that life in the garden was perfect. Life in the garden was not perfect. Paul is very clear about this in Romans chapter 5. What we have in Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, with the possession of the Holy Spirit in us that unifies us with God, it is much more than what Adam had in the garden. We gained through Christ, what we gained through Christ was much more than what Adam lost in the garden. So you have male and female, innocent but not righteous. So here they are in the garden just as plain male, female. She, without any clothes on, is observing this fruit and pondering knowledge and beauty and sustenance. He's sitting there looking at his wife. That's what he's doing. Now, men have seven times more gray matter, brain, gray matter, gray matter in their brains than women do. The gray matter in the brain is what contributes to the ability to singularly focus on things. Women have 10 times more white matter, which is what gives them the ability to think more integratively and across the board at things. Just as women have an eight-lane superhighway for processing emotion, while men have a small country road, Men have O'Hare Airport as the hub for processing thoughts about sex, whereas women have the airfield nearby that lands small and private planes. That probably explains why 85% of 20 to 30-year-old men think about sex many times a day, and women think about it once a day. This is what's on 
Adam's mind in the garden. He's not thinking about death. He's not thinking about consequences. He's just there thanking God and enjoying the image of his wife. So then we come to the enslaved, I call him the enslaved ruler. So what happens? They ate of the fruit, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They obtained knowledge of good and evil, which was immediately experienced in their sexuality, which we won't get into. And then there is consequences that God doesn't necessarily hand down as a curse. It's, it's like, well, here are the way things are now going to be because you have chosen to obtain knowledge of good and evil. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your, chain and your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So again, this is the way things are going to be, humanity, since you now possess knowledge of good and evil. So we could explore this passage significantly in a lot of things. I'm, I'm just looking at what does it mean to be male. And so there's this, there's this verse at the conclusion of the, of the consequences for females. It says, your desire, or you, your desire is to be contrary, or your desire is to rule your husband, but he's going to rule you. And so in the garden, prior to this, you, you have a sense that the, the man is, is the head and the woman is called the helper or the sustainer, but there is not a, there is not a um, what we would consider a conflicting or um, problematic authority structure. Clearly you have dependence of the man upon the woman and the woman upon the man. And there's this unity around who they are, the needs they have, the work they've been given to do, shared experiences. And so now you have this conflict because Adam withdrew from his responsibility to protect and, and woman extended and initiated into the forbidden. And so both are at fault in this dynamic and you have this, this passage that says, your desire will be to rule your husband, but he will rule you. And I want to look at this from the perspective, again, it's not necessarily, um, it's, 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 I think it's an explanation of the way things are going to be. And there is certainly a hint, a strong hint, that the trouble between the sexes started here. Conflict, who is going to rule, is now going to be a challenge between husbands and wives, men and women. And I want to look at this from the standpoint of 
if we have a perspective that one has to dominate, we're going to miss out on the intention that God has for human beings. And I want to look at this from an emotional intelligence standpoint. So male emotional intelligence tends more toward nurturing and empathy strategies. So these are seen as nurturing and empathy strategies that are more aggressive and challenging of personal limitations. Female emotional intelligence is more directly empathetic of the feelings felt by a person in distress. Both approaches to empathy teach resilience. The overemphasis of one without the other can deplete the development of resilience in children and adults. Not just men, not just boys, all children, both men and women, girls and boys. Now, here is what I think is the dynamic that, needs, that we need to recognize and see this in a fuller way. Men have an inclination to please women. It's absolutely true. We will do anything to please women. Women's inclination is to take responsibility for and to assert leadership to create safe environment, to, right? That those dynamics have to be recognized and reconciled in relationships. Men become passive if they are not given the responsibility, which is what it means to rule, if they're not given the responsibility to care for, to provide, and to protect, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to become passive, which I would say is the primary one. They're going to become passive in any responsibility at all. Or they're going to become violent, or they could become violent. When they are given that responsibility and the the culture around them and the, the women in their lives acknowledge that that is something that they need to take responsibility for, to care for, to provide, to protect. And there's a sense that everybody is pushing them to that, then they'll stay engaged. If, if a wife keeps asserting control, they back off, and this is when the Proverbs talk about the man up in his roof of the house and the dripping faucet. He backs off, and if you back off of male development, it does two things over time, and this is what I think we see in our culture. You underestimate the need that, that boys and young men need to become mature by raising themselves to the bar that the women in their lives and the culture is setting for them to become responsible, protecting, providing, caring men. If you back off of that as a responsibility that, is, that defines manhood, you will have men not doing 
anything or a significant chunk of men not doing anything. And so if there's, if, and, and so in the, in the presence of, this, of this, this relationship where the potential is so great for conflict, there needs to be this recognition between the two that the, that the nurturing and caring aspects that women provide are needed for the development of boys and girls, men and women, and that the aggressive aspects of nurturing that men provide are needed to create resilience in both boys and girls, men and women. Then you create a, a relationship that will work. And the need to dominate is gone. To rule is not to dominate. To rule is to care for, to have the responsibility to care for, to provide, to protect. Now, how does the story unfold from here? Well, one moment. Um, so, so they're in, this, they're, they're in this, this relationship where there's a great potential for conflict and challenge, and then in addition to that, work has been significantly affected. Work is now toilsome, and it eventually will kill him. And so he's this enslaved, I call him the enslaved ruler. He can never get away from it, and it's going to kill him. So how does the story unfold? Well, the next story is the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain, because of jealousy and envy, kills his brother. Then you come to Lamech, who is not satisfied with, with one woman, to feel whole or complete, but needs two. And he boasts to these two wives how he has been violent to boys and men. So violence and abuse and polygamy rises up. And then you get to Ham, Noah's, one of Noah's three sons, and Ham makes fun of his father's nakedness after he gets drunk which is the beginning of joking around sexual immorality. So the plight of men goes significantly downhill. And so when you think about the questions about the, the core elements of, of male identity, work, woman, God, in, in, if, if men do not pursue God for that sense of wholeness, if they do not sense the need to rise to the level of, of honor that God calls them to, to care for, to protect, then they become like these men. They become like these men who are using sexuality and work in a corrupt and perverted way to bring wholeness to themselves, which brings destruction to women and to children. And so the questions that men have around identity. Who am I? What is the good life? What does it mean to respect others? What does it mean to live in such a way that earns the respect of others? Revolve around how men perceive God, how men perceive work, and how men perceive women and children. And if those questions are not answered well in their minds, through the church, through the culture, through scripture, whatever, if they cannot answer those questions, they will become either passive and burdens on society, 
or they will become aggressive dominators and bring abuse to women and to children. That's what happens. Men have to answer those questions. Who is God and how does he make me whole? What is woman? What is children? What is work? And so we come to the story of Boaz, and we're not going to read it. Josh already did a portion of it, and, but I want to make a few points on it. Boaz was a single man. Boaz was a single man. When I talk about men being concerned about women, I'm not talking about men being concerned just about their wives. I'm talking about men being concerned for their communities, the society, future generations. Here you have Boaz. He's a hard worker. It sounds like he's got a very large estate. He has servants that work for him. There are poor people that come behind his servants and glean what the servants missed. And he's very clear to those servants to make sure that they leave enough for the poor people. So here you have Boaz as a single man. He works hard, he rules well, he's directive towards his servants in order to protect and provide for the poor and for them to work in such a way that is righteous and to protect the people. He's directive, he uses his authority for that purpose. He cares for widows. Remember Ruth? Ruth is the widow of the widow Naomi. Naomi's husband died, Ruth's husband died. Ruth is a refugee, a Moabite, a person from the enemy nation of Israel. But Boaz steps in, and he helps these widows. And he goes above and beyond what would normally be considered necessary to make sure that they're taken care of. And then he honors Ruth for her love that she has shown towards Naomi. He's looking toward the next generation. Remember because the story unfolds, it's a beautiful story for everybody to read. Boaz is a great man. See, Ruth and Naomi need to be redeemed because they're from a household in his clan. And the obligation was for the next of kin to, to redeem widows, but then you would be taking responsibility to raise up the next generation in the name of the man who died, not your own name. And so there's another redeemer before Boaz who had the responsibility to carry out the name of, the, of, the, of Ruth's dead husband. And he says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I don't want to threaten my own inheritance. Boaz did not worry about his own inheritance. He redeemed Ruth and Naomi to carry on the name of the other family. Wasn't worried about his own name. The beautiful thing about it is that that man is never named in Ruth. You don't know who that man is. But Ruth becomes the grandfather to King David, the father, eventually, of Jesus Christ. So Boaz, these few things, he knew God, he loved God. He answered questions in his mind about who he was before God. He answered questions in his mind about who women are, who children are. 
And he acted for the good of women and children. He didn't use them for his own selfish purposes. He took responsibility and cared for them. Eventually, he got married to Ruth. I think she, she was probably half his age. I don't know. He called her a young woman, and you got the sense that he was kind of an older guy. I'm not saying that to say, hey, all you single men, just you know, work hard, and you'll eventually find a wife this way. I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you have here in the example of Boaz, a man, a man who found his wholeness, not in his work, not in women. He found his wholeness in God. And because he was whole in God, he was able to live in such a way and answer the questions about who he was and what he was called to do, about his work, about women, about children, about future generations, about his responsibility, in a way that, that, that extended care. He is the redeemed redeemer. And so men... God calls us to a place of redemption. Scriptures teach that Christ has redeemed us. Christ has bought us and made us his sons so that we do not abuse the people around us, especially the women and children around us. We don't abuse them by making them our gods. We don't abuse them by seeking wholeness in what they can provide for us. That is worshiping the creature rather than the creator. God is calling us as men to find our wholeness in him. It's what he called Adam to, and Adam dropped the ball on it. And our wholeness is found through Jesus Christ in his Holy Spirit that indwells us. Men, I know you have feelings of being unfulfilled, incomplete, without honor, without glory. Those are messages that the world is giving you. Those are messages that your flesh is giving you, your own mind is giving you. They are deceptive. Deirdre's going to talk in a couple weeks on the power of thoughts and feelings and desires and how those affect the way we think about our identity. Men, men in Jesus Christ. And if you are not in Jesus Christ, men... Your wholeness and sense of fulfillment and sense of honor and sense of glory and sense of completeness, your sense of identity, who are you and who, what are you called to do, will only be found when you are completely full and you take on and believe in the righteousness, the goodness that Christ has given you through his death and resurrection and his gift of the Holy Spirit. I've been married for 25 years. I have lots of ups and downs with my marriage and with my kids. When they disappoint me, when I disappoint them, if I sought my ultimate wholeness and fulfillment in my wife and in my children because of my sin and because of their sin, I would be flat out uh, just pathetic because I let them down. I let myself down. They let me down. We cannot find our fullness in them. We cannot find our fulfillment in the women outside. Whether as married, unmarried, moral, immoral, we cannot find our fulfillment and wholeness in women or in children or in our work. We will never make it. 
And so Christ calls us to be whole in him, to take on his righteousness, and from there we can become true men. Let me pray real quick.